Hello and welcome to Banking Transformed. I'm your host, Jim Roos, owner and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of the Financial Brand. Recently, I had the opportunity to join Ron Shevlin in a unique debate on the future of financial services. Refereed by Jason Hendricks, the CEO of Ally Labs Alliance, this debate was done in the style of a championship title fight, complete with silk robes, a digital timer, and an enthusiastic audience that attended the MX Money Experience Summit at Snowbird Resort in Utah. We debated the future of fintech, challenger banks, the current digital banking trends, challenges in the marketplace, and the hottest topics in banking today. I am fortunate to have Ron Shevlin, Director of Research at Cornerstone Advisors on the Banking Transform podcast today. We're going to do a recap of the debate and share insights on what may not have had time to discuss during the actual event. So Ron, after spending a number of days together with you in Utah, I'm surprised you even joined me today. But I think we both agree that the format of this event we did at the MX Money Experience Summit was a tremendous upgrade from the typical panel discussion. Don't you agree? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, a couple other things I think made it great. First of all, Jim, everybody should know that you and I had round one of this battle a couple months ago uh, over Zoom. So we kind of knew what we were getting ourselves into. The other thing that I think people may not know is, look, you and I have been good friends for 15 years now, maybe close to that. And we have a back channel conversation on what's going on in, in the world of banking and fintech that, that just continues on a weekly basis. So uh, this was not like two strangers walking into the room and battling it out. Uh, we, we know what we were getting ourselves into. Well, for those of you who weren't at the event and watched the live stream or haven't yet watched the recording, the format included 12 rounds of questions that were shared in advance with Ron and I. What most people didn't realize is we didn't know until the event started who'd be able to respond first, which meant that Ron and I basically had to have two completely different perspectives for each question ready to share. The first verbal punch to each question would alternate with Ron and I each getting an opportunity to be first, and then the other person responding. As I said, the referee for the debate was Jason Hendricks, the CEO of Ally Labs Alliance. I'd be really negligent if I didn't tell you he did everything that made this event possible. He created the format, the questions, and created the fight day silk robes and the championship belt. So, Ron, as a recap of the debate, what were your thoughts around the entire format of the event? Well, I think you just said Jason did an absolutely fantastic job. He really kind of made it. Uh, happen, you know, brought a lot of energy to it and asked some great questions. And more than just the great questions, he, you know, really th- gave it a structure around global trends, experience trends, looking out to the future and so uh, and so forth like that. So uh, the only thing that I would, you know, really knock on, on the form, on the f- actual format was the the voting procedure. You know, there was um, not unlike the the uh, what's really happening in real life. There was some serious voter fraud going on in the uh, in the session with your wife and neighbor there in the front row, uh, you know, right in front of the, the, the microphone that was capturing the decibel levels. Uh, I guess that's my own fault for not letting my wife attend and uh, getting her off to the spa because I thought she would just create too much of a distraction for me. And I'd be too worried that afterwards I, she'd spend a couple hours telling me what I should have said, how I should have looked, what I should have worn, and so forth. So uh, that was really my only complaint about the, uh, the the format was the voter fraud at the end. Well, it's interesting. 
while we don't have time to discuss every round of the debate, we both did come out swinging from the opening bell, discussing whether fintech was overheated, whether European or U.S. challenger banks would win in the U.S., and if traditional banking should be involved in crypto and DeFi. Why don't you take a take on, on one of those broad topics and share some of your thoughts? Well, first of all, we agreed that fintech is far from overheated. Uh, you know, there might be some players in this space who are overvalued from a, a, a you know valuation perspective. But look, I think we were both in agreement that there is so much room for, for fintech. My take was that, you know, we've really seen kind of an evolution of fintech over the past 10 years or so at this point, from the fintech really being kind of front end oriented and changing the user interface to what's happening now of a reworking, a rebuilding of the financial infrastructure, you know, the plumbing, the pipes. And that's going to take a few more years and has a lot of room to go. And that hasn't even touched the, the upcoming or, you know, the influx of decentralized finance potential. That's probably another 10 years out. So, uh, you know, certainly uh, nowhere near overheated. And I think you agreed, although you had some great rationale for why you, you thought it was was not overheated. Well, yeah, and and the challenge was, you know, we as you mentioned, we have some fintechs that um, really are providing no business value, yet they're getting a lot of venture capital, and so you run into the whole thing of going, you know, will there ever even be a business case here? While other institutions, you know, we talked about not even as part of the debate, the fact that you know, can everybody go after the underserved customer and? Is there money to be made there? And we're seeing this in the payment space that, you know, the whole building that that dynamic of is a fintech space in the right place right now? Are there going to be a lot of failures? Those are all going to come about. You know, another area in the same section was the whole issue of if um, the U.S. or U.K. challenger banks would win in the U.S. And in that one, I said, you know, I was number one surprised that we only limited it to the U.S. And, and U.K. because, you know, there's so much going on in Brazil, so much going on in Mexico, so much going on in the Middle East, so much going on in China, that to limit it to those really is, is minimizing the impact of fintech globally. On the other hand, I did mention that, you know, we have a challenge because it may not even be a, a fintech firm that's going to come out the winner. Now, between U.S. and European, you you did challenge me and say, you know, I believe you're kind of restructuring the question for your benefit. Well, yeah, I did, which was basically I'm more concerned, much more concerned about the big tech firms getting into the financial space than I am of any one of the fintechs. I, I think, you know, the competitive marketplace in the United States is so heavily structured around banking that, you know, we have no lack of players. And so finding a winner I think overall we need scale first. And I think we both agreed on that. And then, you know, on top of that, you look and say, you know, you look at the the gold markets from Goldman Sachs, which has all the pocketbook in the world, but they're still very small. But you look at PayPal, you look at Google, you look at Amazon, you look at um, uh, uh, Apple. They could all be much bigger players with a lot more impact in the U.S. And it's one of those great questions that, it was structured in such a way that they wanted us to pick a winner. But overall, I think the challenge is at, to what scale and what time frame, because there's a lot to be played out in that marketplace for sure. 
Yeah, a couple of thoughts to that, Jim. First, yeah, you, you, you didn't answer the question. And it was really, you know, who was going to win in the U.S.? I couldn't agree with you more that what's happening in, in South America, Mexico, and so forth is, is really exciting, I think, on the leading edge of things. But I don't, I don't see a lot of Brazilian neobanks necessarily coming into the U.S. unless they're doing, uh, unless they're taking a very niche market approach which was actually my answer to why I thought that the U.S. neobanks would win because so many of them are starting with a narrow focus, a niche, what I like to call the community fintech approach. And yes, I think a lot of non-U.S. fintechs could come into the U.S. with a niche approach, but that does not seem to be the approach that the N26s and Monzos and Revoluts have taken. Uh, the other thing, uh, to your point about the big tech, and I, I agree with you more, however, uh, I said, I, rather, I, I do agree with you to a large extent. However, I do see the big techs as not necessarily being threats as much as being partners and, and providers. Uh, and having said that, you know, literally two hours ago, three hours ago from when we are talking about this right now, Google announced that it was uh, uh, shuttering its, its Googleplex account. And, uh, you, you know, I think that was core to my argument of, of why Google was going to be a great partner and vendor to the to the uh, to the banking space was that they were going to help banks improve their innovation capabilities and provide a great product to the market. That's funny. I've, I've used Googleplex as an example of, of the the impact or the, the the benefit of big tech to to a lot of banks and credit unions. Uh, and thank you, Google, for screwing me up and, and making me look bad. So I appreciate that, Google. I'll get you back for that. It makes both of us look bad because I also thought, you know, the most interesting thing was going to see, you know, how do you get out of a relationship with Google once you've made that, that that you know, that make your jump in bed with the devil type thing or the, the Trojan horse example? Yeah, exactly. So, you know what? After we discussed the global landscape, we got into the trends of user experience, super apps, and what was considered the white whale of the industry where, you know, where's the industry wasting their time? Now we disagreed, disagreed certainly on some of the finer points around user experience and whether or not user experience will actually replace marketing. And I, I think that was an interesting discussion because it was really looking at, um, we looked at different aspects of marketing. So I think in that place I said, yes, I think there's a good possibility that user experience is gonna become more important than marketing but doesn't, it's not going to kill marketing. It's going to kill advertising in many ways. But you, you took a different perspective on that, I think, than I did. Well, the question was, will user experience replace marketing as the mechanism for attracting consumers? And my argument was, well, first of all, I didn't think it, the question made a lot of sense because I think user interface is marketing. And my argument is, well, what is marketing? Like marketing are the tools and activities you have to uh, influence consumers' affinity, preferences, and overall satisfaction and, and loyalty to a, to a provider. And isn't that what user good user experience does, is, is influence consumers' likelihood to buy uh, satisfaction and, and affinity? And so, you know, my argument was user experience is marketing. Uh, and, and so that, you know, but I would disagree with you about advertising, Jim, and I'm surprised to hear you say that as being an old database marketing guy, is that for years we've heard about the depth of advertising and yet it, it still continues to be a strong way of generating awareness, generating affinity, and getting people into the, into the pipeline and into the, into the, into the fold. 
So, you know, the one place where we, we you know, one of the first places that we really differed, we, we've taken different nuances and certain things and certainly had some disagreements, was on the perspectives of what wasn't attainable, the, the white whale. Why don't you go over what your perspective was on the white whale, and then I'll discuss mine. Sure. Well, first, you know, we had a, a pre-battle discussion about what white whale meant. We could have actually just debated that. And, uh, you know, I because I looked it up what white whale was, and it was something that people chase but uh, shouldn't be chasing in the first place. And so I answered the question based on that concept. And my argument was personalization is the white whale that a lot of financial institutions are chasing. My logic being that what a lot of people or a lot of firms are, are chasing around personalization is personalized messaging and to a certain extent personalized advice. When my argument is what people really want is a personalized product or service in and of itself, something that's right for them. It's nice if you can say things like, hey, Jim, we saw that you were uh, browsing on our site yesterday and would you like an offer for this? Or something that looks at your spending patterns and says, Jim, you're spending too much money on cigarettes and alcohol and you should cut it down. That's all very well and fine, but I don't think a lot of people really want that kind of advice, nor see a lot of value to it. But a product or service that is truly customized or personalized, and every time I say that now, I've got Simon Taylor from the UK's voice in my head, and he's got a great accent, of course, so it's not a bad thing to hear. But him telling me, though, that's not personalization. Well, yeah, sure the hell it is personalization if you customize a product or service for a particular person's needs and wants. So that was kind of my white whale uh, around personalization on, on why I think so many firms are chasing it, but to have a misguided purpose for doing so. Well, it's interesting because I think we agree on that. I, I've actually thought that the one thing that was unattainable was loyalty. And, and, and in a way, it's kind of taken the same perspective as, as personalization. We continually as an industry keep on talking about wanting to generate loyalty. And the reality is loyalty today is fractured. We, we may have accounts that we can say haven't attrited, but the relationships have been fractured, it's expanded. Now, I think you came back and said, yeah, but that doesn't mean the loyalty is gone because they still have the accounts with you. But even your research says, you know, is it still the primary financial account? You know, that's, that's to be debated. Um, where's it going to go in the future? And unless we start building open banking solutions, which we did not discuss in the debate was open banking, which was unique too, is that um, if, we, if we look at what's going on in the marketplace today, you know, if somebody said, what's your primary financial institution? We may know who we banked with the longest, but is that really our primary? So that was kind of an interesting dynamic. And I think it was another one of those moments where both of us provided very different opinions, but the audience seemed to agree with both, which was the value of this debate in the first place was there was a deeper depth of knowledge provided without just a, a correlation of thoughts. So, you know, on the final thing before we take a short break is we also differed on our opinion where the banking model is broken. Now, that was probably more of a definition, just like way the white whale was. But I think I said, in fact, I know I said, that the model itself wasn't broken, but the way we deliver services was. And I think you said, you know, to one point, Jim, I don't think you've answered the question. And then you did say that the model is definitely broken. Can you provide a little insight into what your perspective was? And I'll come back and, and talk about why, why I said it wasn't really broken. Yeah. First, let me preface this by saying I think a lot of the differences we had came down to how we define the various terms and the questions 
versus having a truly different opinion on these things. We wanted to be right. That's what it was. We wanted to be right. So we want to make sure we got the question right. Yeah. Yeah. So I interpreted the question, which was the banking model, as the business model. How do banks make money today? And yes, they certainly make money through interest and so forth. And I don't think that's necessarily broken. But the non-interest income side of the coin, which is very fee-driven and specifically punitive free fee driven like overdraft fees and and so forth and just regular monthly fees or inactivity fees my take was that there is a disconnect between the, uh, the the fees that are charged and the value that consumers get from the products and services that they use and that's why i concluded that yes we we have a broken model because of that disconnect in value and especially when you look at a lot of fintechs where they're either closing the gap or have already closed the gap on, on that value fee discrepancy. Uh, you look at someone like Acorns who has a tiered pricing structure. You know, certain things are for free, but you want to get more than you have to pay for more. But you only pay for more if you see and perceive and get the value for, for that fee. So, uh, you know, to me, that's why I thought the banking business model was broken and really needed to be fixed. And I, I took more of a, 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 a historical perspective and said, the model itself of banking isn't broken, but I did say the delivery systems are all broken, that the way we deliver financial services is broken, that we're not responding quick enough. And I think it gets back down to the experience. And actually, uh, to your point, it gets back down to a value transfer. You know, if, this, if my app, if my engagement is not going to be fast and simple, then that value proposition has gone down. If my financial institution is not going to be empathetic, then that value proposition is going to be da go down. And actually, the way people want to do banking has changed. So I guess I took a little bit of more of, more of a, uh, as I said, historical perspective, say we're still taking deposits, making loans, and doing investments and keeping money safe. But the reality is everything behind the screen is broken. Um, it's kind of like the wizard. So, so let's take a short break here and recognize the sponsor of the podcast. This episode of Banking Transformed is sponsored by FIS. The way we move money is changing. We want to send money in real time to the other side of the world. We want everything in one place, integrated, seamless, and on our devices. Embedded, fast, standardized, and frictionless, as well as secure. These are our financial futures. The Financial Futures Podcast by FIS explores fintech innovation and the trends that are already transforming the way the world pays, banks, and invests across the globe. And the mechanisms we'll need to prosper in this new brave landscape. Is the world's technology up to the challenge? Are we? Are those around us? FIS, advancing the way the world pays, banks, and invests. This podcast episode is being presented in partnership with PayPal. PayPal provides access to more than 403 million active global accounts and multiple buy now, pay later offers in a single integration. PayPal Pay in 4 enables shoppers to make purchases in four industry payments. Customers get more buying power and flexibility and merchants get help maximizing reach and revenue. Learn more about PayPal pay later on paypal.com forward slash trust. You 
Is your organization trying to embrace digital banking transformation in 2021? Are you trying to elevate the customer experience? Figure out what technology you want to implement to improve the customer journey. Look at data analytics to really better understand and personalize the customer experience. And you're trying to make it so that more of your employees can buy into and be part of your digital banking transformation. If this sounds like you, I ask you to reimagine banking with our newest podcast sponsor, Microsoft. They give you the opportunity to unlock new opportunities at speed throughout innovative business models, deliver differentiated customer experiences across channels, products, and services, and redefine new ways of banking. Microsoft and its partner ecosystem help banks to achieve differentiation through sustainable growth, streamlining core systems, reducing cost and risk, and delighting customers and employees. If you're in the midst of a journey, trying to figure out what to do next, maybe trying to find out what other organizations are doing to lift up their experience level, I really encourage you to look at Microsoft. For more information, visit microsoft.com slash financial services. Welcome back. I'm joined today by Ron Chevlin, the Director of Research Cornerstone Advisors. As you can tell, if you're on the video feed, we've been doing a recap of the unique debate we participated at the MX Money Experience Summit, where the debate was structured like a championship fight with 12 rounds. So Ron, another question that we disagreed on was whether or not community banks need to take a stand on ESG issues. Now, that was interesting because, again, I kind of looked at the question and thought, Geez, take it, you know, should, do they have to start taking a stand? I think the way the thing was done. My perspective was while the industry as a whole is not doing well, certainly community banks are doing quite well at looking at environmental issues, social issues, and governance issues. And, you know, their participation in the community, the way they support the community is always support the community. Even the way they have a more diverse board base in many cases in the community really was what I was hanging my hat on. However, you had research that really differed from a global industry perspective, didn't you? Well, I was really focusing on the E component of ESG, the environmental. And look, there's no question that there are a lot of banks, large and small credit unions and, and so forth, that are looking to respond and be more environmental friendly from a you know a um, you know zero emissions type of a process, uh, concept or looking to minimize their carbon consumption and so forth. But my argument really comes again from the, the consumer side and consumers saying that environmental concerns are, are one of the most important social concerns and for many consumers they consider it to be the most important social concern. Uh, and that more than than just you know being concerned about it, that they want to a they want to do business with 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 companies, not just financial services, but that's included in there. But they want to do business with companies that they believe have environmentally friendly policies. So that's number one. But number two, and I think this is even the more important point, is that they want from their banks and credit unions financial products that reflect environmental friendly friendly procedures. They want their banks to offer them the ability to track their carbon consumption. One of the interesting things that came out of the survey, Jim, that I did was that even among the consumers 
who say that environmental concerns are the most important social concern, as well as those who, who said it was very important, very few of them actually track their, their carbon footprint. And the reason is because they don't know how. They don't know where to get the tools to do that. And they want that from their banks and credit unions, but even more so, they want features that are built into checking accounts, things like in, uh, you know, recyclable plastic in their debit and credit cards. They want policies that, that the bank will not fund environmentally unfriendly uh, providers and so forth. Now, not every consumer wants that, of course, but there's a, a growing number and it's significant to the point that these are this is a segment of consumers and I think that's proven out by companies like Aspiration and Ando and so forth, who are, are targeting and, and serving consumers who have who are you know looking for environmentally friendly companies to work with. You know, it's interesting. After the event, you and I were approached by a number of people, not only saying how much they enjoyed the format, but also how important some of the questions were. And one of the most important questions I heard about from the ringside audience uh, after the event was the question around what is the biggest challenge facing banking today? Now, while we didn't diverge too much from another, both of our perspectives resonated very strongly. I, I talked about the need for stronger leadership and leadership that really is ready to embrace change at a time when, firstly, no financial institution is losing money. So I, I address the fact that, you know, we have, in most cases, leadership at, at certainly mid-level firms, especially, that are a bunch of guys that got together 30 years ago in management training and haven't been separated since. And they have the same perspective, has had the same victories, have done very well, by the way, for their financial institutions. But the challenge is all we're talking about, all the things that need to be done are not really being embraced by that leadership because they're not hurt. You know, it's just like going to the doctor and find out if you're not going to be told you're in a really bad shape, you may listen to what the doctor says to do, but you may not do it. You may not change your behavior. And at the end of the day, it really is leadership that's holding up investments. They're holding up changes in the way they address the digital consumer. They're holding up new training programs for employees to let them know they are part of the digital future. Now, you took a perspective that was, was very close, and that was about culture. Do you want to discuss a little bit about why culture is so important as well? Yeah, and actually, Jim, you know, you had a great answer. I'll definitely give you that. Um, but I almost saw it as, as we were talking about the same thing, uh, because w what is culture? Well, culture is, you know, a lot of, and I'm not big on this. You know, I mentioned this, too. I'm really not big on the squishy terms like that. But when I kind of think back and try to, you know, follow the chain of what's driving the problems. I, I think we came to the same point about leadership, but to me that was reflected in the in the culture of the organization that didn't make tough decisions, didn't, you know, really look at how their customer and member base is changing and react to it. Uh, you know, we would definitely agree that there's a segment of leaders who are, you know, just trying to hunker down and get get to retirement. But I have to tell you that I deal with a lot and says to you, a lot of banks and credit unions, senior management team, and maybe it's a thing of self-selection. Maybe the ones that are hunkering down don't ask me to come talk to the management team or talk to the boards. But of the, those that do, I have to say, I, I, I don't see anybody hunkering down. Uh, you know, I think they're very hungry to, to adapt and change. And I think the biggest challenge they have is how do we do it and where do we start? 
Uh, and that's not a bad problem. And I don't think that's a legacy leadership issue. It's a, you know, we need help in figuring out how to how to get there. Though uh, I would certainly agree with you that there's probably some segment that are just trying to hunker down and wait it out and hand off the problem to the next generation of leaders. Well, it's interesting because after we discussed the biggest challenge and after talking to so many bankers at the MX Money Experience Summit, it became clear and it's become clear over the last two months that I've visited with bankers face to face. We're talking about these global issues that most bankers can't change. The real problem in banking, I wrote an article about it uh, yesterday, actually, for the financial brand, was that most bankers right now are buried in the daily tasks that face them. They, they know what they need to do going forward. They know what they have to move towards. But bottom line is right now, keeping pace with change, keeping pace with what needs to be done, what has to be done in a somewhat crisis mode in a post-pandemic world is probably the biggest challenge because if we can't have time to move forward and, and don't hire new people to help us out with that, that's maybe a, a bigger, more relevant challenge to middle market or middle level employees in the, in the organization. Yeah, you know, Jim, if I if I could change my answer to that question uh, during the debate, I, I was thinking about this afterwards. I might change it to that the biggest problem are are people like you and I, um, who are constantly out there writing and telling bankers about what the biggest problem is, and so what they hear is ten different things from ten different people. And then they have to sort of figure out well, and weigh these, you know, what's the biggest problem? Culture, leadership, lack of data, lack of technology, regulation, consumer change. I mean, there's just so many different things that honestly, you know, probably what I should have responded back to Jason was uh, there is no one, you know, you, you can't boil it down to one biggest issue because then you're, you know, so let's say if you were to score these things on, you know, the, the, the magnitude of the issue. And one item got a score of 97 and the other got a 95. Really, is that that big a difference, you know? And so, look, there's just a lot of things that you have to deal with as, a, as an executive in a, in a financial institution these days. And to kind of boil it down to which one is the, the most important, once again, probably should have hit Jason with the bad question. Uh, let me answer a different one. Okay, so taking that as the starting point, let me ask you a question that wasn't asked, which is very similar. If you have one thing that you'd recommend the average, and I know it's hard to get an average on financials, but as an industry, what is the one thing they should address first right now, which is really what a challenge is, but what should they address right now? What's the most important thing is they're doing the strategic plan process that, boy, I'll tell you what, guys, I hope you get this solved by this time next year. Uh, I would encourage them to focus on what I would think of as the data infrastructure, the ability to get data, use data. It's two sides of the coin. You got to get it. You got to use it. And you might not know what you're going to use it for, and you might not know exactly which data elements are most important today, but you don't sort of have the luxury of waiting and figuring, letting other people figure out what data elements are important and issue and how to get it and how to deploy it and then figuring out how to do it. This is what I, you know, I, I think a lot of firms have uh, suffered from is sort of the sit back, wait, let somebody else do it. You know, this, and you know, I've written about this many times over the past couple of years, what I call the, the, the fast follower fallacy. 
you know, the idea that, you know, we're a fast follower. That's actually harder to do than being on the front line, because then you're just out there making, you know, some bets and, and experimenting and responding to those things. That's actually easier than being uh, a fast follower who has to monitor what's going on and having an ability to respond quickly, because most financial institutions don't have either the ability or luxury to, to respond quickly. But I, I think, you know, there's so much that, that you're able to do if you are gathering and using data today. Uh, and I think a lot of financial institutions don't have that data infrastructure in place. I think they are building and have a, a decent technology infrastructure, but not a data infrastructure. You know, that's interesting because I, I would have said that, you know, the thing, and I've said it before, the thing that I think is most important right now is we've got to fix a lot of this, the back office items that really make it so you can't deliver digital. So my example I always give is new account opening or digital loan applications that all these institutions made the capability for somebody to do it possible because of the pandemic because there was no other option. You couldn't go to the branch and do that. But they put it in in such a way that it still took 10 to 15 minutes to complete it, which on a mobile device is an inordinate amount of time. Now, recent research I just completed shows that over the last 12 months, organizations have done a much better job at making it an easier process. Well, where last year, the average for new account opening and digital loan applications was 12 to 15 minutes. The average is now about five minutes, which is a whole lot better. However, it's still far from what is acceptable from a digital consumer. And that's all held up because the back office is many times to put together with chicken wire and, and duct tape where it may look digital on the output, but the back office still is structured in a, in a legacy banking environment. And I'll tell you what, organizations that don't fix that are normally losing about 60% of their possible account openings or loans because people drop off and we don't have any way to recover those in most cases because most organizations don't track those people that drop off. So really we have to look and say, are we building the back office to support digital uh, digital experiences. And, and I think your answer and my answer, you know, if we had another question out there, what do you have to do tomorrow when you go back to your office? It's probably a missed question, but no problem with the debate. You know, another question we were asked was wait, interesting. Wait, wait, wait. Before yeah, you get off that question, you never cease to amaze me, Jim, to say exactly what I just said, but using different words. Jim, what, what is the digital application process? It is the process by which data is collected and used. It is, the, the, it, the application process is the data infrastructure and, and ability. So- well, I'm talking about we, automation and actually even the, the process flow. So I think you're right. My, my answer certainly includes your answer, but it even it adds a little bit more in the automation, the processes, even the, the, the process order. I know what a digital loan and you know what a loan process used to look like. It's still, it's still broken. We're, we're still doing too many things manually, but you're right. It is a data and, and analytics infrastructure. Good point. Um, you know, what, what was interesting, this was a question that was asked by Jason that I knew whoever had it first was certainly going to have an advantage because I think there was only one answer and I thought we would both agree and we did, but we, he obviously for the, the benefit of the audience and benefit of the program, we had to take different perspectives on different this answer altogether. And that was, which P2P pr platform was going to be the winner, Zelle, Venmo, and or the Cash App? And I, I knew right off the bat 
that Zelle was not going to be the winner from our perspective as far as a P2P platform, because I think we both agree that there's there's a bigger perspective than Zelle. So I knew it was going to be between Venmo and Cash. And I knew that I wanted, if I was going to be first, to pick the Square Cash app for various reasons, but most of all, because it, it's got the best platform. However, you got to answer it first. And, and you know, why don't you give the reason why you pick Cash? And then I'm going to have to show why I picked Venmo, which was not necessarily my first choice. Yeah, well, first, my answer was there is no winner because I don't, this is not a zero-sum game. Uh, and, and all of them have strong growth numbers behind them and will continue to have strong growth. But they go in very different directions and strategies. And we didn't get into this, but, uh, you know, Zell's strategy is to, to really to be ubiquitous among the banks I think ultimately, you know, where they really are going is more to be a, a B2B platform versus a B2C or, or P2P platform. Venmo has done strength, has had strong growth as well, but is looking to expand more again into more of a B2C versus P2P and, and get their card being used in, in retail transactions. Uh, whereas Cash App, of course, is competing with Venmo on that same front to a certain extent. But I ultimately said I, I thought they would have the strongest growth numbers because I'm, I'm a huge fan of what Square is doing in terms of really building out a network and a platform of users and uh, and merchants. And in fact, one of my recent uh, posts on, on FinTech Snark Tank was about the Square TikTok partnership. Uh, and it's interesting how a lot of the the media channels point you know point to the fact oh TikTok has a billion customer a billion users, well that's irrelevant. What's more relevant to this equation are the number of people who use TikTok to generate revenue, the creators. And what I see Square doing there is looking to try to capture the creator economy. So I think they've got just a, a lot of tailwinds behind them. I don't think there's one winner out of the three, meaning the other two are losers, but um, I'm really impressed. And I think the biggest threat to the banks is not Venmo, but I think the bigger threat is Square and Square Cash App. And I, I think we both agree that if we were asked to invest in one of the three and they were all investable properties, we would probably pick cash. What was interesting about Venmo, and this was, I, I as I said, we had to prepare for two different answers. And so I said, my backup was with Venmo. You have a bigger user base. Um, it's not as profitable on a per customer basis as cash, but it's a bigger user base and scale does give you something. In addition, Venmo is part of PayPal and PayPal has huge pocketbooks and they have the ability to move market share if they invest in such. Now, you know, some would question and say, you know, PayPal fell behind the buy now, pay later front. And there's those that say, you know, okay, now they're playing catch up. That's sometimes the case with PayPal. You know, I reference that PayPal sometimes is is thought of as being the legacy fintech. And that's not a negative thing. It just says, you know, you you kind of you kind of deal with what you deal with until it's you find out that, geez, you know, there's somebody picking at my heels, um, very much like the banks do with regular fintechs. And I think you know, Venmo is a very interesting base. It's it's much lower profitability per, and it's not as as you said, it's not as broad of a platform as Square or as Square Cash, which is which was interesting. And it was funny because at the uh, MX event, 
I did run into Lou Goodwin, who I'm going to be interviewing in a, a couple of weeks here on on Banking Transform podcast. And I've known him since he was with um, with uh, GoBank and and some of the things he's done. And just a great person. I said, by the way, I may be put in a position to pick a company other than yours. I just want you to know that I still believe you guys have a great platform. So you, you always worry, as you said uh, earlier, you always want to make sure that you're not biting the hand in the feed you or, or uh, debating against somebody that you really do believe in anyway. Um, finally, I think Jason did a great job asking when he thought of the most, he asked about what was the most overhyped concept in banking today? And this was, this was fun because this was an open issue. And I, I, I think we both thought, you know, this is one that if I go in a good direction, I pretty much know that Jim won't mention it, or I pretty much know that Ron won't mention it. So you mentioned buy now, pay later, which a lot of people I know initially thought, what? And then it was like the best question and the best answers from you. And I think, you know, uh, not pat myself on the back, but going to it, that both of us had because they were both coming out of the blue that they didn't expect. So can you explain a little bit why you thought buy now, pay later, maybe just an overhyped concept? Yeah, I thought it was overhyped because, well, first of all, there's just so much hype around it. But I like to go back to the numbers. And reality is, is that in 2020, U.S. consumers uh, purchased about $24 billion worth of products and services using a buy now, pay later program. Uh, and that and that's out of $5 trillion of retail spending. Yes, this year, I, even I will project that buy now, pay later in the United States will quadruple to $100 billion, but that's still only 2%. And so... You know, I think we're overhyping the the potential for buy now, pay later to cannibalize all the other forms of payment. However, two two things, two points I'd like to make, Jim. One is the one that I did make in the argument and the debate was that look, even I said, look, I, I might be proven wrong with this over the next couple of years because what's really kind of happening is that there's the potential for buy now, pay later providers to you know, kind of become the credit card of the, of the future and displace some of the issuers. I think it's very important. I didn't get into this in the argument. I had written about this in a, in a, a Snark Tank uh, post a couple of weeks ago that the, the real potential for buy now, pay later is really broader about how payments is playing a bigger role in the marketing mix. Yeah. You know, you're an old marketing guy. I'm an old marketing guy. We probably took marketing in college and learned about the four P's of marketing, product, place, price, and promotion. And I think payments are becoming the fifth P of marketing to the extent that it can influence. And so what's important is that, you know, the banks, this is what the banks don't get, Jim, is that they look at buy now, pay later as simply a payment mechanism that, oh, yeah, we can offer that too. But what the affirms and Klarna's and afterpays of the world understand is that buy now, pay later can influence consumers' choice of products and how much they spend, and it influences them earlier in the decision-making yep. cycle. And that's the big advantage that they they have and why this could evolve to, to really being something big, even though I still called it the, uh, the, um, the biggest hype. The other point I want to make is I had a conversation with some folks afterwards it really got me thinking about my answer and, and why they, why I had some weaknesses in it. And that's, I was looking at buy now, pay later and the overhype of it very much from a sort of a retail products perspective. Yep. But there are certain types of purchases or you know really expenditures that we as consumers have 
that uh, are can really be enabled by buy now, pay later. I'm thinking specifically of things like elective medical procedures. One of my favorite buy now, pay later uh, vendors is one that focuses specifically on elective medical procedures. And you know the ability if you're in a doctor's office and you know you want to get something done, it could be you know uh, you know not just uh, you, you know superficial type things, but you know whatever it might be, the ability to you know have an ability to finance that on the spot becomes very important. I was really looking at the overhype of this from the perspective of do we really need a buy now pay later program to buy a fifty dollar pair of jeans? Right. Um, and so, you know, that's that's what kind of got me thinking that, uh, uh, you know, I might have had a better answer for that question. Well, well, it's interesting because, you know, I was sitting there or standing there and really loved your answer because I think you're right. It does have a, a big hype. And then I also thought about it after it said, you know, is it buy now, pay later, the thing we're fighting or, or as you said, payments become a bigger aspect and the ability to have instant credit availability is different but similar to buy now, pay later. But, you know, we're, we're both uh, know uh, uh, our friend from uh, MBank in Poland that built a, a great mobile platform that gave credit availability to most everybody instantaneously on their mobile app, different levels, and then could reapply for greater payment, greater uh, uh, lending ability. And so it's one of those things you go, gosh, it depends on how it's defined, but it's probably the future of instant credit, which is a completely different thing. So, you know, my, my thing that I thought was overhyped was, the merger of mid-tier banks and that that the combination of multiple mid-tier banks makes a better bank for the consumer. I know it makes a much more efficient bank. And I know that every bank is promoting the fact that they're going to be a better digital bank and be able to answer more of the consumer's needs on a on a digital basis with this merger because they're going to have more funds available as they close branch and do anything. But it's a very thinly veiled objective of efficiency. And now, my while it may make a more efficient bank, it doesn't necessarily make it a better bank, and certainly not from the consumer standpoint. Now, there could be, as you said, you rethought about your answer and said, boy, I could be wrong on this. My weakness on this, if mergers start to make better banks with better leadership, I referenced back to one of my earlier answers, which was legacy leadership is still a big underpinning of, of weakness of, of financial institutions. And when most of these mid-tier banks merge, they take the first leader and then he leaves in two years and the second leader takes over. And I and I reference some examples of, you know, do we end up with a continental united merger that really never merged except on the efficiency basis and still have separation of organizations to such a degree that when you walk in a plane, I can tell you exactly if it's a continental or united plane being from Cleveland or continental had a headquarters. But at the end of the day, you know, all these organizations are doing is creating efficiencies that at some point the government may say, wait, well, we're getting fewer banks, but not better banks. So, you know, it's one of those things that I took a stand on. I think what was interesting is these are the, this is the question that ended the whole debate. And I think we both ended with really good, hard hits to what's going to be going on out there. You know, you, you always look at the audience, see what the reaction was. And this was another one that afterwards, there was a lot of buzz Um after the event saying really liked your guys going back and forth on these things. So Ron, yeah, one, I, thing, one yeah. thing I'd say to you quickly to that, I really liked your answer about the mergers. I wouldn't have even thought of that because I didn't think of mergers in the light of hype. Uh, yeah. But, uh, you know, look, when it comes to the mid side, I totally agree about the, you know, about it not making a better bank. 
I'm less worried or concerned about the mergers of mid-sized institutions because I do think that they need to achieve better scale. Uh, but where I would really knock is the the big bank mergers. Yeah, oh, uh, I and agree. I don't want to piss off good. anybody at at SunTrust and BB&T or at U.S. Bank and who they're looking to acquire now. But you know, at that point, when you're you know you know you've got five hundred billion in assets, and so do you really need a another fifty billion dollar bank? What are you really getting when, when you're doing that? I think the smaller institutions do need to continue to look at mergers and acquisitions as a way to as a way to scale. But the larger banks, I'm I'm really missing the. Uh, the value proposition here. Well, and and we could we have agreed in the past and saying I'm not too sure if the customer gets any benefit there. You know, so um, you know scale is one thing, but uh, at some point the consumer is going to have to win to make it uh, win for the long term for the banks. But Ron, thank you very much for revisiting this whole concept. I, it was fun. It was different. Um, it, as you said at the beginning, it, it's somewhat something that we kind of do on a daily basis anyway is take our jabs and say, I don't agree with you on this. And I'll tell you what, it makes us all stronger. It was a great event overall. I think the fact that it got people thinking, but you know, at the end of the day, the thing that we took for granted that was really the best part of the event was seeing people in person again. Um, you know, I hope we come out of this in 14 days, whatever the time is, as happy about it as we do now. But I'll tell you what, having live events, getting behind the stage and seeing a stage from the backside again, it's been 18 months since that's happened with me to get back on a stage. And, you know, it, it shows that much like bicycle riding, you know, you don't you don't learn how to ride a bicycle. But uh, it was a lot of fun to have my first event in 18 months to be with you. So thanks, Ron. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Banking Transform, rated as a top five banking podcast. I genuinely appreciate the support you've provided since we started this endeavor. If you enjoy what we're doing, please be sure to follow Banking Transform on your favorite podcast app. In addition, please take 30 to 45 seconds to show some love in the form of a review. It means the world to us. Finally, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out the new research we're doing for the Digital Banking Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Leah Longbreak, audio engineer, Sean Rowe Hoffman, and video producer, Will Pritz. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Until next time, remember, if your thought process is not moving forward, you're falling behind. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.